Today's call of worship will be from Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8. I'll be reading from today's New International Version. My people, hear my teaching, listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth with a parable. I will teach you lessons from the past, things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us. We will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children. So the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born. And they, in turn, will tell their children. They would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but will keep his commands. They will not be like their ancestors, a stubborn and rebellious generation, whose hearts were not loyal to, whose spirits were not faithful to him. Today's worshiping word comes from Ruth, chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi, when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Life is a wonderful thing and full of all kinds of confluences. If that's a word, confluences, but I'm going to make it plural. Uh, happy to be corrected on that one afterwards by Brenda spoke. We just took a little trip with Brennan to the East Coast and we got an earlier flight back and who was on the flight but the Wiggins. Now what are the chances? They've been taking a vacation anyway. So they're a family from Glendale, Santa Clarita with this church in common meet on an airplane in the East Coast. What are the odds? Life is full of these things and I look forward to watching them continue to surprise me as I go through. Well, we have been doing a theme here called Bible 101. My ongoing burden and concern has been that Christian literacy, biblical literacy, is dropping dramatically. Interestingly enough, the Associated Press this last week published an article on that. They did some survey work and found out that Christians in general know very little about world religions and very little even about their own faith particularly their own scriptures, the Bible. Mormons seem to do a very good job of knowing scriptures compared to the rest of Christendom. And uh, other world religions were ahead of Christians in their knowledge of world religions. And Christians themselves had about a 50% if that pass rate on a basic Bible knowledge test. That's frightening, especially when you consider the Christian rhetoric, quote-unquote rhetoric of, of politics these days, and how Christianity is supposed to play into all of that. What we have is a nation of people who are Christian in name, who probably don't know Christ well, and certainly don't know their scriptures, declaring what is Christian 
in terms of political ends and means in this, in this country. That's a frightening thought. I think if we want to make a difference in our country, if we want to make a difference in our families, if we want to make a difference spiritually in our own lives, we've got to finally be able to return to the knowledge of the book. And so I've been doing this one-on-one -on -one series to kind of remind us of the great stories. For some of you, it's uh, uh, been a review and, and maybe a few spots of, of uh, newness for you. For others, it's been a whole new chapter, I think, in your experience, and I, I hope that will continue to unfold today. We've, we've done the book of Joshua. We're skipping a major portion of the book of Judges. And I want to recap basically why the period of the Judges is not a period that's about perfect people or necessarily leaders that you and I would find inspiring. It's not about easy times or times that we readily comprehend. It's about times in which the people of Israel are attempting, through periods of great difficulty, to claim the land that was promised them. And in the meantime, finding themselves religiously assimilated into the Canaanite cults and religions around them. The book repeats often, and the people did evil in the sight of the Lord, or they again did what was wrong in the sight of the Lord. That refrain comes often. It's almost a chorus in the book of Judges. And in each period of time, God raises up a person, a particular person, a special person, women, men, to lead armies, to bring about revival, to point again to the law and to what Moses had been given and to set God's people back on the true path. Now we get to something post-Judges, and we're going to be focusing today on the book of Ruth, as much as one can in 15 or 20 minutes. The book of Ruth is a story that takes place in the period of the Judges. Now, the way Moses had been given uh, by God, the, the way to disseminate, um, that's not the right word, to... Uh, give out the land that was to be the inheritance. Certain things were set up so that the land would stay forever with the clan or family. It's the total opposite of capitalism. That's the human impulse. We all want to play monopoly with real property, at least I do. But what they set up was something that provided for generations down the road. So land could be sold, for example, but it could also be redeemed the price could be paid back by a kinsman redeemer. Land could be sold, but at the 50th year of Jubilee, it had to be returned at no price whatsoever to the family it originally came from. So there was a process that was instituted that enabled people to hold on to their inheritance. Now, I'm, I'm going through this because it's of spiritual significance as we think a little bit down the road what's going on here. You see, we were created and given a land. We were driven from that land at the time of sin. And we are promised again access to a land like that, paradise if you will, at the end of the story. There are trees that provide fruit which leads to eternal life. In the first home there's trees that are the trees of life, or tree of life, in the last half of the story as well. So part of what is going on in this redemption theme that we're exploring 
has to do with the overarching theme of Scripture. That is to say, there's a story of God creating an order that was good, given to humankind, possession of a land, dominion over it, encouraging them to tend that land and be a part of that land. There is a fall from grace, and then there is a redemption that occurs in history, which leads to a restoration of that land and that grace and that place. So it's kind of a full circle story if we look at the overarching theme of Scripture. So when you get to the book of Ruth, the first chapter deals with probably uh, the quote that was read for the uh, Scripture this morning is perhaps the, one of the most famous quotes from the Old Testament and certainly one of the most famous quotes from the book of Ruth. We have a story of famine in the land. Sound familiar? There's famine in the land, and in order to find food, in order to survive, Elimelech and his wife, Naomi, and their two sons travel to Moab. Now, the land of Moab is where present-day Jordan is. It's across the Jordan River, and the hills there and into the desert there are ways. They go to Moab where there's food. The boys find for themselves Moabitess wives. And eventually they hear that the famine is over and they seek to return to the land. But before they can do that, years have passed. Elimelech dies and the two boys die. Now this is a story of tremendous loss and sadness. But she has two daughter-in-laws, Moabitesses. One is Orpah, and the other, Ruth. She urges these two to stay with their kinsmen, to go back to their clans, to be with their people. And they both weep and resist and say they will not, that they want to be with their mother-in-law and that they will go with her back to the land of promise. But she reminds them that she is growing old and that if even she had a husband at that very moment and should conceive that very night and have a son, that son wouldn't be old enough to marry these daughters for many years to come. And would they want to be single for that period of time? She reminds them of the futility. You see, they had a custom and a practice. If I had six brothers and I was the oldest and I had married my lovely wife Jill and I died, my next youngest brother would get to marry her. Lucky guy. And on down the line. That was how they did things. And my younger brother, if I had no children with my lovely wife, would be obligated to give her a child if possible, preferably a son, so that my property would not be lost to my name, but would be carried on through that child even though the brother would technically be the father, my property would carry forward in my name with his, his child and my wife's child to say, on down the line. Now, that sounds very strange to us today, but it was the custom of the time, and it functioned very well socially because it made sure that there were no widows lost in society. It made sure that property stayed within the proper clans and families, and it made sure that the wealth would remain spread throughout Israel and not lost. And I, I think probably some of you are giggling. There, there were other benefits, perhaps, as well. 
How many of you men have wanted six wives? I don't know. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I think one is, is uh, plenty for uh, my management purposes. And that's all I have to say about that. We get to this, this tender scene where she's urging them to stay. And Orpah eventually chooses to go back to the people. Hopefully she will remarry. Hopefully her life turns out. We don't know. We never hear from Orpah again. But Ruth utters these tender words. Don't press me to leave you. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lay, I will lay. Wherever you live, I will live. She wants to be with her mother-in-law. And so Naomi consents and returns to an area around Bethlehem where she's from with her daughter-in-law. How many of you have been to Bethlehem? So you know those hills and, and that country a little bit. She goes back and they're both widows. They have land through their husbands and sons, but they don't have any money for the land. What we don't know in the story, and it'll come to be clear in just a minute, what we don't know is what exactly happened to the land, and I'll try to really come back to that. In any event, they go back to this home region and have nothing to do but glean. They have no money, no resources. And so Naomi sends Ruth out into the field to glean, and as it happens, she starts to glean. How many of you know what gleaning is? Okay, good. For those of you who don't know what gleaning is, gleaning is an agricultural term. It's a process for post-harvest. So you would have, say, an apple orchard, and you would send your workers in to pick the apples, maybe uh, two pickings, and they would leave the fruit that was too ripe behind, or they might leave the fruit that wasn't yet ripe behind. And a gleaner would be somebody who comes in after the harvest and takes the fruit as it ripens or takes the fruit that's left behind. In this case, they were grain fields. So as the harvesters went through, they didn't quite get all the grain. Some of it fell in its stalks on the ground. The gleaners could pick it up and take it. It was a practice meant to sustain people who were in the position of Naomi and Ruth. And so she gleans. Well, the story gets interesting, and I'm, I don't know that I have time for all of the details this morning, but let's do turn to chapter 2. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man standing from the clan of Limelech, whose name was Boaz. And so Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. So Naomi said, go ahead. So as Boaz arrives, verse 4, from Bethlehem and greets the harvesters, the Lord be with you, they also answer back, the Lord bless you. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? It was either going to be her father or her husband. The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She came to the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here 
with the women who work for me, watch the field where the harvesters are working, and follow along after the women I have told the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you, and whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this point, she bowed down her face to the ground, and she asked him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you have taken notice of me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with the people that you do not know. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. And so all of these kindnesses pass between these two. He gives her extra grain. He tells the harvesters to leave more for her. He shows her favors in more ways than one. And Naomi sees an attachment coming, as they're fond of saying in Victorian terms, and instructs Ruth in what to do. And this is, frankly, just bizarre. But it's what was done. It's threshing season. So after the harvest, they're threshing grain. Of course, they're making all sorts of things, uh, flour, uh, beer, uh, or, or some sort of grain beverages. And at the harvest time, Boaz is ending his day eating and drinking, like most people do. And he is happy and fat and full and satisfied and lays down to sleep. And what Ruth is instructed to do is wait until he's asleep. She's to dress up her perfume herself, look her best. And she's to go to him and pull the draping off of his feet and lay down at his feet. Now that just seems bizarre to me. I don't know about you. That's what she does. He wakes up in the night and discovers that there's someone there. There's a woman there. Who is this woman? I am Ruth. And he knows immediately what must be done. He counsels her to stay with her. He says there is one who is near in relations to her than he, that he must check with in the morning, but that if this person near in relationship to her does not redeem her, he will. And so the process unfolds. The next day the market, he waits for the elders various clans to arrive and he finds his kinsman and he says there is a, a lot of land would you like to buy it? it is the property of Elimelech and his sons and the kinsman redeemer being a good, uh, good businessman says of course I'll take it sees a great opportunity to expand his family's holdings but there's a catch and Boaz is wisely waited he says that's terrific when you make your purchase, you will acquire a new wife. Ruth, the Moabites, will become your wife. And immediately, the, the nearest kinsman says, ooh, that would endanger my estate. Now, that sounds really strange to us, but here's what he's talking about. If he were to have a child with Ruth and not have a child with his own wife, or have a child with his wife who was a son, but that son were to die, then the property would eventually transfer back over to the other side of the family. And so he decides it's too much of a risk to his estate to play kinsman redeemer. And so Boaz becomes the lucky purchaser of the property, and with it, a nice little bonus, he gets a new wife, Ruth. 
Does this sound like craziness in contemporary times? I suppose it does. But it's actually a really lovely story because I want to focus this morning on that term, kinsman redeemer. There had been a return to the homeland. And just as in times of patriarchal age, families stuck to their plans in terms of marriage and property, so it was in the time of judges. And the system works in this case. It works very well. But that term redeemer is only used in a few books of the Bible. It's used extensively in Ruth. It's used a couple of times in Psalms. And it's used in one of the Gospels. We use it a lot. But it means one who will pay the purchase price. I preached a sermon a long time ago called Redemption Value. About the way in which Christ has redeemed us. He pays the price for our sin. There's a redemption. It's part of that theme I'm talking about. That literary theme. The fall and the redemption and the restoration of the grace. This land that we have, which we lost, which we will again inherit. And that story is played out in the book of Ruth. There is a land which was given to her family, which has been lost. And this is where I said I would try to remember to come back to the story. It would have been lost through one of two ways. Either Elimelech had tried to sell it or sold it before he went to Moab, or it had been sold was being sold uh, by the sons, or had been sold by the, anyway, or it, it was mortgaged, basically. And Naomi didn't have the funding to pay the mortgage and redeem the land. She didn't have the price money. Ruth didn't have the price money. So the land was rightfully theirs, but they couldn't inherit it until the kinsman redeemer would pay the price. And so, the kinsman redeemer, Boaz, pays the price, redeems the land, and redeems the family as well. And the redemption isn't just monetary. The redemption is a redemption of a name. It's a wedding in chapter 4, and at the end we read these words starting in 11. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel, may you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Did you know that was in the Bible? Right there, chapter, verse 13. So the women said to Naomi, Praise be the Lord who this day has not left you without a family guardian. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age, for your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This, then, is the family line of Perez. 
Perez was the father of Herzog. Hezron, excuse me. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Samon. Samon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. And David, the king of Israel, the ancestor of Jesus Christ. Redemption. The kinsman redeemer comes. He saves a name. He saves a piece of land. He saves an inheritance. And he brings salvation to a family. Restoration out of loss. And that story continues to this day as we look to Jesus Christ who gives us a name, Christian, who promises again an inheritance of land, who declares us a family purchased in his blood, and who stands as the Redeemer once for all that we might live and live joyously. It is time now for us to give thanks to God. We do this here at this church responsibly through our tithes and through our offerings this day. The bulletin will guide you as what today's offering is for. I believe it's church budget. We definitely have these there. Let us uh, ask the meetings of this time to collect. May the Lord bless us in what we have received and in what we have shared. May he cause his face to shine upon us and go with us from this place. In Jesus' name, amen.